This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dear Enemy, by Jean Webster, Part 24, read by Kim Zuckert, Tales of the Brass Hedgehog, Hedgehog.net. January 27th. Dear Dr. McRae, I wonder if this note will be so fortunate as to find you awake. Perhaps you are not aware that I have called four times to offer thanks and consolation in my best bedside manner. I am touched by the news that Mrs. McGurk's time is entirely occupied in taking in flowers and jelly and chicken broth, donated by the adoring ladies of the parish to the ungracious hero in a plaster cast. I know that you find a cap of homespun more comfortable than a halo, but I really do think you might have regarded me in a different light from the hysterical ladies in question. You and I used to be friends, intermittently, and though there are one or two details in our past intercourse that might better be expunged, still I don't see why we should let them upset our entire relationship. Can't we be sensible and expunge them? The fire has brought out such a lot of unexpected kindliness and charity. I wish it might bring out a little from you. You see, Sandy, I know you well. You may pose to the world as being gruff and curt and ungracious and scientific and inhuman and scotch, but you can't fool me. My newly trained psychological eye has been upon you for ten months, and I have applied the Binet test. You are really kind and sympathetic and wise and forgiving and big, so please be at home the next time I come to see you, and we will perform a surgical operation upon time and amputate five months. Do you remember the Sunday afternoon we ran away, and what a nice time we had? It is now the day after that. Sally McBride P.S. If I condescend to call upon you again, please condescend to see me, for I assure you I won't try more than once. Also, I assure you that I won't drip tears on your counterpane or try to kiss your hand, as I hear one admiring lady did. The John Greer Home, Thursday. Dear Enemy, You see, I am feeling very friendly toward you this moment. When I call you McRae, I don't like you, and when I call you Enemy, I do. Sadie Kate delivered your note, as an afterthought, and it's a very creditable production for a left-handed man. I thought at first glance it was from Punch. You may expect me tomorrow at four, and mind you're awake. I'm glad that you think we're friends. Really, I feel that I've got back something quite precious, which I had carelessly mislaid. S. McMee. P.S. Java caught cold in the night of the fire, and he has the toothache. He sits and holds his cheek like a poor little kitty. Thursday, January 29th. Dear Judy, those must have been ten terribly incoherent pages I dashed off to you last week. Did you respect my command to destroy that letter? I should not care to have it appear in my collected correspondence. I know that my state of mind is disgraceful, shocking, scandalous, but one really can't help the way one feels. It is usually considered a pleasant sensation to be engaged, but, oh, it is nothing compared with the wonderful, untrammeled, joyous, free sensation of being unengaged. I've had a terribly unstable feeling these last few months, and now at last I am settled. No one ever looked forward to spinsterhood more thankfully than I. Our fire, I've come to believe, was providential. It was sent from heaven to clear the way for a new John Greer. We are already deep in plans for cottages. I favor gray stucco. Betsy leans to brick and Percy half timber. I don't know what our poor doctor would prefer. Olive green with a mansard roof appears to be his taste. With ten different kitchens to practice in, won't our children learn how to cook? I am already looking for about ten loving house-mothers to put in charge. I think, in fact, I'll search for eleven, in order to have one for Sandy. He's as pathetically in need of a little mothering as any of the chicks. 
It must be pretty dispiriting to come home every night to the ministrations of Mrs. McGurk. How I do not like that woman! She has with complacent firmness told me four different times that the doctor was asleep and not wanting to be disturbed. I haven't set eyes on him yet, and I've just about finished being polite. However, I waive judgment until tomorrow at four, when I am to pay a short, unexciting call of half an hour. He made the appointment himself, and if she tells me again that he is asleep, I shall give her a gentle push and tip her over. She's very fat and unstable. And, planting a foot firmly on her stomach, pursue my way tranquilly in and up. Llewellyn, formerly chauffeur, chambermaid, and gardener, is now also a trained nurse. I am eager to see how he looks in a white cap and apron. The mail has just come with a letter from Mrs. Bretland, telling how happy they are to have the children. She enclosed their first photograph— all packed in a governess cart, with Clifford proudly holding the reins and a groom at the pony's head. How is that for three late inmates of the John Greer home? It's all very inspiring when I think of their future, but a trifle sad when I remember their poor father and how he worked himself to death for those three chicks who are going to forget him. The Bretlands will do their best to accomplish that. They are jealous of any outside influence and want to make the babies wholly theirs. After all, I, I think the natural way is best for each family to— produce its own children, and keep them. Friday. I saw the doctor today. He's a pathetic sight, consisting mostly of bandages. Somehow or other we got our misunderstandings all made up. Isn't it dreadful the way two human beings, both endowed with fair powers of speech, can manage to convey nothing of their psychological processes to each other? I haven't understood his mental attitude from the first, and he even yet doesn't understand mine. This grim reticence that we northern people struggle so hard to maintain— I don't know, after all, but that the excitable southern safety-valve method is the best. But, Judy, such a dreadful thing. Do you remember last year, when he visited that psychopathic institution, and stayed ten days, and I made such a silly fuss about it? Oh, dear, the impossible things I do. He went to attend his wife's funeral. She died there in the institution. Mrs. McGurk knew it all the time, and might have added it to the rest of her news, but she didn't. He told me all about her very sweetly. Poor man, for years and years, has undergone a terrible strain, and I fancy her death is a blessed relief. He confesses that he knew at the time of his marriage that he ought not to marry her. He knew all about her nervous instability, but he thought, being a doctor, that he could overcome it. And she was beautiful. He gave up his city practice and came to the country on her account. And then after the little girl's birth she went all to pieces, and he had to put her away, to use Mrs. McGurk's phrase. The child is six now, a sweet, lovely little thing to look at, but I judge from what he said, quite abnormal. He has a trained nurse with her always. Just think of all that tragedy looming over our poor patient good doctor, for he is patient, despite being the most impatient man that ever lived. Thank Jervis for his letter. He's a dear man, and I'm glad to see him getting his desserts. What fun we are going to have when you get back to Shadywell, and we lay our plans for new John Greer. I feel as though I had spent this past year learning, and am now just ready to begin. We'll turn this into the nicest orphan asylum that ever lived. I'm so absurdly happy at the prospect that I start in the morning with a spring and go about my various businesses singing inside. The John Greer home sends its blessing to the two best friends it ever had. Adio, Sally. The John Greer home, Saturday at half-past six in the morning. My dearest enemy, some day soon something nice is going to happen. Weren't you surprised when you woke up this morning and remembered the truth? I was. I couldn't think for about two minutes what made me so happy. It's not light yet, 
but I'm wide awake and excited and having to write to you. I shall dispatch this note by the first-to-be-trusted little orphan who appears, and it will go up on your breakfast tray along with your oatmeal. I shall follow very promptly at four o'clock this afternoon. Do you think Mrs. McGurk will ever countenance the scandal if I stay two hours, and no orphan for a chaperone? It was all in good faith, Sandy, that I promised not to kiss your hand or drip tears on the counterpane, but I'm afraid I did both, or worse. Positively, I didn't suspect how much I cared for you till I crossed the threshold and saw you propped up against the pillows, all covered in bandages and your hair singed off. You are a sight. If I love you now, when fully one-third of you is plaster of Paris and surgical dressing, you can imagine how I'm going to love you when it's all you. But, my dear, dear Robin, what a foolish man you are! How should I ever have dreamed all those months that you were caring for me when you acted so abnormally scotch? With most men, behavior like yours would not be considered a mark of affection. I wish you had just given me a glimmering of an idea of the truth, and maybe you would have saved us both a few heartaches. But we mustn't be looking back. We must look forward and be grateful. The two happiest things in life are going to be ours, a friendly marriage and work that we love. Yesterday after leaving you, I walked back to the asylum, sort of dazed. I wanted to get by myself and think, but instead of being by myself, I had to have Betsy and Percy and Mrs. Livermore for dinner, already invited, and then go down and talk to the children, Friday night social evening. They had a lot of new records for the Victrola given by Mrs. Livermore, and I had to sit politely and listen to them. <laughs> and, my dear, you'll think this funny. The last thing they played was John Anderson, my Joe John. And suddenly I found myself crying. I had to snatch up the nearest orphan and hug her hard, with my head buried in her shoulder to keep them all from seeing. John Anderson, my Joe John. We climbed the hill together. And money a canty day, John, we've had we one another. Now we mun totter down, John, but hand in hand we'll go, and sleep together at the foot, John Anderson, my Jew. I wonder when we are old and bent and tottery, can you and I look back with no regrets on money a canty day we had we one another? It's nice to look forward to, isn't it? A life of work and play, and little daily adventures side by side with somebody you love? I'm not afraid of the future any more. I don't mind growing old with you, Sandy. Time is but a stream I go a-fishing in. The reason I've grown to love these orphans is because they need me so, and that's the reason, well, at least one of the reasons, I've grown to love you. You're a pathetic figure of a man, my dear, and since you won't make yourself comfortable, you must be made comfortable. We'll build a house on the hillside just beyond the asylum. How does a yellow Italian villa strike you, or preferably a pink one? Anyway, it won't be green, and it won't have a mansard roof. And we'll have a big, cheerful living room, all fireplace and windows and view, and no McGurk. Poor old thing, won't she be in a temper and cook you a dreadful dinner when she hears the news? But we won't tell her for a long, long time. Or anybody else. It's too scandalous a proceeding right on top of my own broken engagement. I wrote to Judy last night, and with unprecedented self-control I never let fall so much as a hint. I'm growing Scotch myself. <laughs> Perhaps I didn't tell you the exact truth, Sandy, when I said I hadn't known how much I cared. I think it came to me the night the John Greer burned, when you were up under that blazing roof and for the half-hour that followed when we didn't know whether or not you would live. I can't 
tell you what agonies I went through. It seemed to me, if you did go, that I would never get over it all my life, that somehow to have let the best friend I ever had pass away with a dreadful chasm of misunderstanding between us. Well, I couldn't wait for the moment when I should be allowed to see you and talk out all that I have been shutting inside of me for five months. And then, you know that you gave strict orders to keep me out, and it hurt me dreadfully. How should I suspect that you really wanted to see me more than any of the others, and that it was just that terrible Scotch moral sense that was holding you back? You are a very good actor, Sandy. But, my dear, if ever in our lives again we have the tiniest little cloud of a misunderstanding, let's promise not to shut it up inside ourselves, but to talk. Last night, after they all got off early, I am pleased to say, since the chicks no longer live at home, I came upstairs and finished my letter to Judy, and then I looked at the telephone and struggled with temptation. <laughs> I wanted to call up 505 and say good night to you, but I didn't dare. I'm still quite respectably bashful. <laughs> so as the next best thing to talking with you, I got out Burns and read him for an hour. I dropped to sleep with all those Scotch love songs running in my head, and here I am at daybreak writing them to you. Goodbye, Robin lad. I low your wheel. Sally. End of part twenty four. And end of dear enemy. <laughs>